Merry Christmas, everyone, and uh, welcome to Hope Church. Oh, here we go. (laughs) We'll try that again. Uh, Welcome to Hope Church. Thanks so much for even squeezing in. I know most of you, many of you right now, you have people in your personal space, and uh, so we're all crammed in here. We're going to keep the back doors open to let some airflow uh, in here so you don't fall asleep and it gets too hot in here. But again, thanks so much for being here uh, today, whether Hope Church is home for you uh, or if you are visiting, uh, you've been invited by a friend, uh, you were just looking for a church service, a Christmas Eve service service, uh, and you drove by and said, I'm going to check out uh, Hope Church today. We uh, here at Hope Church, we say on a, I would say, somewhat regular basis, whatever faith background uh, you bring to this place, we are glad you're here. Uh, and that might be for some, no faith background at all. Um, maybe for some, you are here because uh, whoever brought you or invited you said, listen, you don't come, no Christmas gifts. Uh, so you need to come. Or no ham after the service is done or whatever it might be. I don't know what maybe uh, was the motive, but wh- however you came uh, today, we want to say we are thrilled uh, that you're here. We'd love to connect with you even after this service. If you have some time, some of our staff will be kind of scattered throughout the building. I'll be out in our main lobby. I'd love to connect with you. Next weekend, just to let you know if you want to come back, we have a guest connection. This is a casual reception just to welcome those who are new uh, to Hope Church. No need to, no cost, no need to sign up. You just show up. Room five, some of our staff will be there. We'd love to answer any questions. And next week, just to kind of give you an idea where we're going, it's hard to believe we're flipping the calendar uh, next week, um, early Monday morning, flipping into 2018. And so what we're going to be talking about, we've been going through this series when there's five Sundays in a month uh, called Elephants in the Family Room. Um, we all have elephants in our family room. We all have things that we know are there, but maybe we're hesitant to talk about. And I don't know about you, but it feels like time is moving so much faster. And so what we're going to talk about, we can't create more time or make more time, but how can we make the most of the time we've been given. So that's what we're going to be talking about next week. So today, as we wrap up this Advent series, we're thinking about this theme called love. And the way I want to kind of focus or hone in on this, because we can go love in a bunch of different ways, is I want us to think about love, God's love in action. Love is an interesting word. We use it to describe, I love my family, I love the calves, and I love steak and shake, at least... I love steak and shake. I don't know if you do or not, but, but it's interesting that we use this word to describe so many things about that we love. People we love, places we love, sports teams that we love. And, and I think we would also admit that love is more than just an emotion. It's more than just a feeling. It's really to be something we're to live, live out. And, and it's even, uh, the phrase would be better, uh, actions speak louder than words. And I would believe that'd be true for love. Are we willing to love those even who are unlovable? I think we would all admit that at times we're unlovable. Every single one of us is unlovable at times. We've, we've all done things, said things that we look back at and we wish, why in the world did I ever do that? For me, one of those, one of many, one of those situations was I was part of a, a softball team and I was the catalyst for a nearly a bench clearing brawl on the middle of a softball, in the middle of a softball game. Now, what makes it even worse is it wasn't just like city softball. This is church softball. Uh, None of us threw any punches at each other, but we all met around the pitcher's mound and exchanged a few words with each other and, and then went our separate ways. And I got home that night and I just sat down and I said, what in the world did I do? Why did I say those things? We've all done and said things that we regret. 
And that's even the challenge for us to be people that love others who at times are unlovable. And I want us to look at the text found in the Old Testament. If you have your Bible, uh, a chapter in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is in the Old Testament, when we see God's love in action. God just doesn't say, I love you, but he actually shows it. He models it. He lives it out. So if you have Isaiah chapter 7 open, if you don't have it in front of you, the words will be up on the screen. But you need to get a bit of background before we jump into this. I want to show you a map that'll be helpful. Um, This map shows what's happened at this time when Isaiah writes. The nation of Israel has been divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom in the green and the southern kingdom in the purple there. Uh, So the two names of the kingdoms, the northern kingdom is called Israel. That's not speaking for all of Israel. That's just describing the northern kingdom. And the southern kingdom is Judah. So the northern kingdom has 10 tribes. Maybe you've heard of the 12 tribes of Israel. So in the north, in the green, lived the 12, or excuse me, 10 tribes. And in the south, lived two. Basically, civil war has erupted. Within God's people, they are fighting, there's conflict, there's wars, each, uh, each kingdom has its own king, and basically they don't get along. And this is the context, the background, the backdrop, if you will, that Isaiah writes into. And I think it's important for you to understand this, this situation geographically uh, because it's going to make sense as we move into this text. And in Isaiah 7, it'll probably be maybe an unfamiliar chapter, but I would imagine as we get to verse 14, it's going to be very familiar once we get to verse 14. But we have some verses to read before we get there. So let me start just by reading a couple verses out of chapter 7. This is, I'll just say this too. This is one of those passages that uh, my background is I grew up in a church. I was there from really birth uh, through high school. And this was one of those chapters in the Bible. Like if your Sunday school teacher asked you to read, you were like, oh, please, no. So many names. And like in Sunday school, when you looked ahead and you saw so many names, you were like, when the teacher's like, does anyone like to read? Your eyes were like, no, no. It's like math class when anyone want to go to the board and do this problem in math class in elementary school. And, but this is one of those chapters. A lot of names. We're going to move through a lot of names. I'll explain the names as we go through this. Isaiah chapter 7. It says, when Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, that was the king of Judah. So Ahaz is the king of that southern portion, the king of Judah, the south there. Was the king of Judah, king Reason of of Ram and Pekah, son of Ramelia, king of Israel. So Pekah is the son of the northern kingdom, king of Israel. uh, Marched up to fight against Jerusalem. Jerusalem's in the south, in Judah, where Ahaz is the king. But they could not overpower it. So what happened is these, these, the king of Israel and the king of Aram formed a coalition and they together said, we're going to go wipe out Jerusalem. We're going to tear it apart. We're going to dismantle the leadership. We're going to take off captives and we're going to set up our own leadership in Jerusalem. But they couldn't do it. They couldn't overpower the, the people there in Judah. So in verse 2, now the house of David was told that Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. Ephraim is one of the tribes of Israel which is just north of Judah. It's basically mileage-wise, like from Brunswick to, to Cleveland. So you have these two kings who have tried once to fight against Jerusalem. They tried to wipe them out, and now they're coming back again for a second try. They've regrouped. They've rearmed themselves. They're ready to come back to fight. So now these two kings have come together. They've, they're just a, about 30 miles away. And, what, and uh, Ahaz finds out about this. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken. 
as, and Isaiah uses this picture to understand the depth of fear that struck the people, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. So if you see a, you see a storm come through and shake, a few months ago here in Brunswick and Medina County, we had some pretty significant winds come through. Some of you lost trees on your property and that's damage to your home. And the idea of these strong winds are literally shaking the trees. And Isaiah uses it to describe the attitude of the people. They're scared to death because they know they're done. There's no way. They, they beat them the first time, but they can't do it again. They can't hold off these armies again, and they're shaking with fear. And what is kind of presented to the king is a choice. King Ahaz, who's in Jerusalem, who's in overseeing Judah, has a choice. Do I either trust that God is going to take care of us in the midst of overwhelming odds, or do I hope and I put my trust in another king to say, maybe this other king, and specifically the king of Assyria, Assyria at this time was the, the major power, superpower, and he's saying, maybe I could trust them to protect us from these other kings. And that's kind of the choice before him. And then in verse 3, we are introduced to Isaiah, who the book is named after. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son. He tell, the Lord tells Isaiah, don't go alone to talk to the king, but bring your son with you. And here's his son's name. Your son and your son, Shear Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the pool of the aqueduct of the upper pool at, on the road to the washerman's field. If you've ever tried to find a home like on a county road, this sounds like those directions. You pass the oak on the left, make a right. You go past two trees, the wall, make a left. It's there. Like that's when you try to get out to, when you go visit someone who lives out on the county roads or out in the country. But Isaiah is sent by God to this king and the king is by a pool. He's by the, their water supply. And what he's doing is he's checking out, do we have enough water to make it through this battle? He's checking out their water supply. And he's afraid. He knows he can't, his army can't, or he can't defeat the enemies, the armies that are coming. He knows he can't do it. He's checking their water supply. And, and God says to Isaiah, don't go alone, but take your son. And this isn't just like a, a trip for dad and son to go on together. Like it just be a good male bonding time. But Isaiah is instructed to take his son because of what his son's name means. And if you have a footnote, you probably do in your Bible, what Isaiah's son's name literally means is a remnant will return. He says, Isaiah, don't go alone, but take your son with you. And your son, as he stands before this king, is going to be a tangible reminder or tangible example to this king that yes, battle, the fight, the war is coming, but you will not be wiped out. A remnant will come back. In a way, God was communicating what he wanted to say to this king through this little boy. So, that, so Isaiah goes with his son. He goes to the pool. He goes to the water supply. And he brings his son who speaks or just being there says a remnant will return. And then he says to him, Isaiah says to the king in verse 4, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Don't be scared to death about what's these kings or these armies that are coming. He says, don't lose heart because of these. Notice how he describes these kings or these armies, because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. It was kind of like the, 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 the um, shepherds in that video we just watched a moment ago. 
You have smoldering logs, like they've burned a little bit, they've burned bright, but now they're about to go out. That's what these kings are. These kings, it looks like they're vibrant, it looks like they're powerful, but Isaiah is saying to this king, they're going to go out. They're not all that. And then he goes on to say, because of the fierce anger of Reason and Aram and the sons of Remelia, the son of Remelia, Aram and Ephraim and Remelia's son have plotted your ruin. And here's what the kings have said to each other. Let us invade Judah and let us tear it apart and divide among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel a king over it. Basically, a, we want to put our own puppet king kind of that we can pull the strings and he'll do whatever we want him to do in Judah, not Ahaz. So that's how the people, these kings, that's, what, that's how they view what they're going to do. But then Isaiah says this, yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. This is God's perspective on what's going to take place. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only reason. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. It'll be broken apart. And Isaiah is even saying within 65 years, what happens is in 65 years, Assyria literally comes into Ephraim and wipes them out. 65 years later, that actually took place. And then in verse 9, the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is only Romelia's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, there's the choice the king has. Do I, do I trust that God, what God is saying will actually happen? Or do I put my trust in the Assyrians and how they can protect us because they have more money, they have more weapons, they have more men, they'll take care of us. That's the choice for the king. And then in verse 10, Isaiah even says this, and again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah. He says, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whatever, whether it is in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. So whatever you want, King Ahaz, whatever you need as confirmation that this will really happen, ask God, and literally it says he will move heaven and earth and make it happen just to help you know you can trust him. And Ahaz, this is a pretty crucial moment. Ahaz says this in verse 12. I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, they might sound actually very spiritual because maybe uh, you might be familiar with the Bible verse that talks about you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not test him. And it might seem kind of religious or spiritual that Ahaz, like that's, he's, he's following what the Bible says. You don't put the Lord your God to the test. But here's the difference in this text. Isaiah, on behalf of God, is saying, ask me for whatever you want, and I'll give it to you as a sign. And Ahaz, in that moment, says no. And really, he makes his choice. He, he's making a choice that he's going to align himself with Assyria and hope that they will deliver him. When in return, they will protect him for a time, but they will actually defeat him. And it's interesting that you have God continually, through the prophet Isaiah, going to him with his son, saying, these kings look powerful, but they're really not powerful. They have God saying, through the prophet Isaiah, this won't happen. You, and ask me for anything, just as a sign that gives you confirmation. You have all, God is continuing to move towards this king. And you would think at this last moment, you would think God would be like, well, I've given you every opportunity to turn, to trust. I'm done. 
we're moving on. But God continues to move towards him. And then in verse 13, we see this. And then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Talk about Judah, Jerusalem there. It is not enough to try the patience of men. Will you try the patience of my God also? And here is the maybe familiar verse in the midst of Isaiah chapter 7. Therefore, even though you, don't, you, won't, you won't accept my invitation for a sign, I'm going to give you a sign. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Here's evidence. Here's confirmation. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel, which if you follow a footnote to the bottom of your Bible, it literally means God with us. In verse 15, it says, and he will eat curds and honey. Those were, um, that's not like he was a vegetarian. But what it's talking about is that he will eat the, poo, the, poor, the food of the poor. He will eat the food that the poor eat. He will identify with the poor. He's not going to eat at the king's banquet table when he's born. But he's going to eat the food of the poor. When he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, and the verse 16 is important, but before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings, you dread, talk about these two specific kings, the king of Israel, the king of Aram, these two kings, their land will be laid waste. They will be laid to waste. Now, if you're maybe familiar read it, with reading the Bible and even verse 14, our minds naturally go to Jesus being born and the fulfillment of that, and we'll get there in a moment. But I want us to first understand the historical application of that verse, that there is a sense, especially based on verse 16, that Isaiah isn't just thinking about this future birth, but he's also talking about right now with this king. Because he goes on to say in verse 16, but before the boy knows enough to reject wrong or choose right, kind of talking about the, the age of 12, the land of the two kings right now in this context, you dread will be laid waste. So the, the sense is there's both a future application in the birth of Jesus, but a historical application right now. Now, there is a mystery. Who is this young girl who's going to give birth? There's a mystery to it, but what I believe is because this is a sign for the king, she is somewhere in the royal court so that when this, this woman, young woman is married, has a child, and she names him Emmanuel, that the king Ahaz will be reminded in that moment... God is present. Even when I have continued to reject him and go against him and not accept or his invitation for a sign, even when armies come and destroy, even when there's death and destruction, God doesn't abandon people, but he continues to move towards people. And I wonder for some of us today, you need to hear the truth like Ahaz needed to hear that God is present. Maybe 2017 for you was a year you wish you could just erase. It was one of those years that you wish you could redo or not do again or just try to forget about. And even right now, in the midst of Advent and Christmas and what's going to take place today and, this, and tomorrow and all the joy and the excitement and the gifts and the family and the food and the celebration and the friends... In the midst of all that excitement and joy, for some, it, you carry a pretty heavy burden to this place. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one this year. 
Maybe it's the loss of your marriage this year. Maybe it's the loss of a job this year. Maybe you have honestly wondered, does God even care about me? And maybe as you, even as you look at your life, you say, you know what? I, have, I don't really care about God. And I've continued to make decisions that say, I don't really care about God, about the Bible, about church. But I want to let you know, God's attitude towards mankind is he continues to move towards us. And we can say today that God is present. Isaiah, the words he said there some 700 years before, before the birth of Christ, obviously find their greatest fulfillment in Jesus being born. So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to just to turn to Matthew, and we'll move through this Matthew chapter 1, where we find fulfillment of this text, of this prophecy about this child being born. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, it says this, This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, due to the diversity of ages we have represented, I'm not going to get into what's really going through Joseph's mind. I don't, I just, you as parents maybe aren't ready for those conversations with your kids. Like, what, what, what do you mean? What's happening? So we'll just kind of say, Joseph is struggling with what to do. <laughs> but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And Matthew pauses here and gives us commentary. And why does this matter? What just took place, what he's saying to, what this angel is saying to Joseph, why does this matter? And, Ma and Matthew gives us the commentary, verse 22. All this, what he just said to Joseph, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet some seven centuries before Jesus is born, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and he took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Today, here on Christmas Eve on the 4th, Sunday of Advent, we've lit, lit the candle of love, but we also want to light the Christ candle. The theological term given to Jesus taking on flesh, flesh is the incarnation. Eugene Peterson, a, a pastor, an author, he describes it as this way, God took on skin and bones and moved into the neighborhood. He became one of us. This, honestly, is hard for our minds to wrap around. That the Son of God, the God who created, God who created all we see, who created us, who's the creator, would become part of the creation. I tried to tr give us an example. I want us to think about the Lego movie. Uh, I want us to think of Emmett. You've maybe seen the Lego movie. Here's Emmett and his friends, Batman, trying to escape from Lord Business. If you've never seen the Lego movie, I highly encourage you to watch it. It's an incredible, awesome movie. But just try to wrap your minds around this. You, you try to think of if, if Legos were real, 
And those were real places that you would build and real figures and they lived and they talked and, and you had Lord Business trying to ruin Emmett and his friends' worlds. And, and the creator of Legos, instead of sending Emmett, sent his son. And he just didn't send his son as a man, but he sent his son not as a man, until, but he sent his son as a Lego to redeem or to save Emmett and his friends from Lord Business. And, and, the, and the creator's son, as a Lego, no matter how much he ate, he always had that slim front. It didn't matter. And he never bent his knees because Legos don't bend their knees. But even though he's the creator's son, he took on the form of the Legos. That's the idea. He stepped in to our world. And when he stepped into our world, it wasn't like a costume at Halloween like my kids were wearing a few months ago. <laughs> you have Wonder Woman, Tom Brady, and the emoji, an emoji smiley face, and my favorite, Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> but my kids and your kids, and maybe you as adults, when you dress up, you put the costume on, you put the, the mask on, and for those hours or at that party, you are that person. But then when the party's done or when the, the uh, trick-or-treating is done, you take the mask, you take the costume off, and you put it away, and then you are who you are. But Jesus, it wasn't like a costume that he put on for a season and then said, okay, I'm done, and took it off. But we get a sense when he walked out of the tomb, when he rose from the dead, he still had flesh. He took on flesh. And he still to this day has the flesh. We're told we, the idea of even being able to see the wounds in his wrists. Touch, Thomas touched them. He has flesh. He identified with us. In the incarnation, friends, we see the face of God. We see who God is. God could have revealed himself and does reveal himself in any number of ways. But I want to say, and I believe, the greatest way God revealed himself to mankind is in Jesus. And some of us struggle with what God is like. And there's a variety of reasons why we struggle with that. And for some of you, again, maybe you bring to this place, really, you could care less about church, about Christianity, about faith, about the Bible. And for some, you have had some pretty, maybe bad examples of followers of Jesus in your life. And I'll just say this, I'll readily admit, as a follower of Jesus, we don't get it right all the time. I don't get it right all the time. I say things and do things that do not represent who God is. And for some, you have had experience after experience interacting with a coworker or a family member and who calls himself a follower of Jesus. And when you look at what they do and what they say, you're like, how could that be a follower of Jesus? How could that be God? And you're like, I don't want anything to do with him. But I want to let you know today that in the incarnation, we see the face of God. I love that song that was sung a moment ago that talks about our souls feeling our worth. And when we see the incarnation, when we see Jesus taking on flesh, we'll realize our souls have worth because there's a God that was willing to continue to move towards mankind. Even when we, at times, just reject him, he moves towards us. Also in the incarnation, we are shown how to love. We're given, I, I think, the example of what does it look like to love. And again, in that song that was sung a moment ago, uh, the lady's saying, truly he has shown us how to love one another. 
There's a story told about a four-year-old girl who awoke one night frightened, convinced that in the darkness there in her room were all kinds of monsters under her bed. Alone, she ran to her parents' bedroom. Her mother calmed her down and taking her by the hand, led her back to her own room and where she put on the light. And here's what the mom, loving mom, all of us moms, dads would have said. She said these words, you don't need to be afraid. You're not here alone. God is in this room with you. The child quickly replied, I know that God is here, but I need someone in this room who has some skin. (laughs) I need someone in this room who has some skin. And I believe as followers of Jesus, we have an example of what does it look like to love with skin on. And today in our world, friends, that is, I think we would all admit is becoming more and more divided by the day. I think it's an opportunity for for followers of Jesus, those who love Jesus and are following him, to accept the invitation to love, to be Jesus with skin on, so to speak, to model his love, to embody his love, to represent him, to love people that have differing views than you do, differing beliefs than you do, different political affiliations than you do. Jesus gave us the ultimate example. He moved towards those who were rejecting him. He stepped into our shoes. He walked in our shoes. He moved towards us. And might we accept that invitation today as we see God's love in action, realize it's an opportunity for us to love others. It's an example for us to love. I'm going to invite those who are participating, part of the worship team, if you guys want to make uh, make your way back up as, um, as we move. And I'd love for you to take your candles out. I'll just say this. Some of you might be looking at this and... It's appropriate with The Last Jedi coming out recently that my candle today looks like a lightsaber. I, I, I didn't make this. This was made for me. But uh, I'd love for you to get your candles out today. And what we're about to do is very traditional. Uh, I remember as a little boy, this was honestly my favorite service every year when I went to church because I, I was so excited that my parents trusted me with a candle, that they would trust me to hold it. And, and so this is a tradition that I've been doing for a very long time, and I'm sure many of you have been doing for a very long time. But here's what I want to say before I light my candle, and we light the rest of our candles today, and we sing a few songs as we wrap up. As you light your candle today, as the light or the flame comes to you, might you be reminded today of God's presence with you. Whether you believe in him or not, whether you follow him or not, whether you do things that honor him with your life or not, that we believe in a God who moves towards mankind. Every man, woman, and child moves towards all people. So as you receive the light, as a flame comes to you, might you be reminded of God's pursuing and love of you and his presence with you, even in maybe a dark year or a dark season or a difficult season. And then as you pass the light, as you pass the flame to the people sitting around you today, might we all be reminded of that call to love. There was a song sung back in the 60s. What the world needs now now, is love, sweet love, not just for some, but for everyone. And I believe that's 
what our world needs. And it'll be shown through people who are willing to do it. And even love those who at times are unlovable. It's hard. Just a few practical instructions. We just ask that as you're, if you have, um, if you're waiting for your candle to be lit, that you would uh, tilt your candle towards the one that's lit. That'll keep wax from falling all over your hands and burning you uh, as we pass the flame and uh, going on your clothes and the furniture, those types of things. But I'm going to light my candle. I'm going to invite the ushers who are helping uh, pass uh, the candles and then we'll, um, we'll sing some songs together.
It all happened in a moment, a most remarkable moment. While the creatures of earth walked unaware, divinity arrived. The omnipotent, in one instant, made himself breakable and became pierceable. The hands that first held him were the unmanicured, calloused hands of a sleepy carpenter. And were, were it not for some shepherds, there would have been no reception. Were it not for a group of stargazers, there would have been no gifts. It all happened in a moment, a remarkable moment. The Word became flesh. The Son of God, love's pure light, had arrived, and with Him the dawn of redeeming grace. Good people, all this Christmas time, remember well and bear in mind what our good God for us has done in sending His beloved Son. We pray you have a blessed and wonderful Christmas. As you extinguish your candles, please do so very gently, and uh, then keep your candles uh, upright so that wax doesn't drip. But you may now extinguish your candles. As we close today, let's celebrate the joy that the Lord has brought into our lives. Would you stand and sing this carol as we conclude today?
Merry Christmas, everyone.